This is episode 10 of Hoops Forum, a joint effort between Radius Athletics and a Quick Timeout podcast. I'm Tony Miller, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Randy Sherman. Before we get going, I want to thank our sponsors over at 323 Sports. If you are in the market for a team dealer, we would suggest that you take a look at 323 Sports. Whether it's team gear, spirit wear, uniforms, sports equipment, they can do it all for your sports program. To find out more, visit 323sports.com, or you can get in contact with a sales rep today, sales at 323sports.com. They'll be sure to do it right for your sports program. We are headed into the third and fourth rounds of the NCAA tournament, and so we wanted to work those topics into our conversation today. Uh, We asked all of you this past week what you would like for us to talk about, and when we uh, gave that as our poll, by the way, you can check out the polls each week on Randy and my Twitter accounts. When we gave that, you gave us kind of a smattering of responses here. Some of you wanted us to talk X's and O's, some with the four factors, and some of us just with, uh, you just wanted some general observations. And so with that in mind, we're going to try to address each of those here. I think probably where we want to start, Randy, is talking about the four factors, just because it's something that we've talked a little bit about on our our show. And we've talked about the fact that you've been tracking this with the NCAA tournament. So I think people like always like to hear a little bit about like what that looks like for an individual tournament um, and even maybe what are some things that that are predictive and then some things that, as we were talking before, maybe like an anomaly or something and kind of just looking at those observations. So kind of like with that in mind, you kind of want to give a quick rundown of what you've observed so far from this year. Yeah. So four factors I started, I started kind of just looking for a way back in 2018 to, I looked for a way to sort of do some, share some, something different, in the tournament that no one else was doing and, and giving some just statistical observations on the outcomes based on the Dean Oliver's, you know, four factors Been keeping a spreadsheet of this. I, I mean, the main thing I would say is like, there's, there's really no surprises and it's not any different than what is foretold in the book and in, in basketball on paper by Dean Oliver. If you haven't checked that out, uh, the, there's, there's no surprises. There's nothing, I've really not uncovered a secret or or a backdoor into winning the tournament. It's it's just confirming what is kind of known. Yeah, what you're looking at there on the screen would be a, a, a coach that I work with in my ramp program. He he's kind of helping me. He's he's a girls coach, so he's interested in like maybe looking at if there is a difference in the women's tournament and the men's tournament. Maybe there's some sort of inherent difference in that game. So what you're looking at there is his summary data of of the NCAA women's tournament. So the records when a team wins a factor, pretty straightforward winner there. Effective field goal percentage, if you win that, the team's winning effective field goal percentage are 41 and 7. So kind of what you see there, you know, just a quick glance of interpretation would be there's one factor that's clearly out in front of the other three, which are tightly packed as in terms of, of win and loss. Now, when you drill a little bit deeper, what you see kind of below that line to the middle of that table is, is when you look at combination. And this would be kind of the theory that, that, that I've kind of like thrown out of like effective field goal percentage plus one more. If you win effective field goal percentage and plus one more, really any of them, <laughs> right? Like win effective field goal percentage plus turnover, plus offensive rebound, plus the free throw factor, like you're getting into that certainty of winning realm. In fact, if you win effective field goal and turn of turnover percentage, you're, you know, those teams on the women's side are 25 and 0. And I think working off memory here, maybe you have a tweet. I think on the men's side, it's 
19 and 0. Uh, if you win both effective field goal percentage and turnover, it's now 19 and 0 in this tournament. In wow. fact, I've been doing this since 2018. There's only been one game where a team won both effective field goal percentage and turnover percentage, and they won those by a very, very slim margin and lost the game. And that was Texas Tech versus Villanova back in 2018 in the Elite Eight. Texas Tech won, narrowly won, very, very narrowly within like decimal points, won effective field goal percentage and turnover percentage, but lost huge in, I mean, huge, double, triple, huge in offensive rebounding and turnover and, and sorry, free throw, uh, the free throw factor to Villanova and Villanova advanced. So how do you feel like style of play impacts this? Because as I'm looking like bigger picture, I think a lot of times we, we pick style of play sometimes maybe like we, but a lot of times it's just like surface value. What is this team either ranked or they're mm-hmm. bigger, faster, stronger or whatever. And when you do see maybe an upset and you can speak to some of maybe even like, Loyola's games or some of these other ones. I don't know if you looked at like Oral Roberts or whatever. Like, yeah, what are they doing for factors related that's leading to them pulling these upsets? Yeah, I was asked that question the other night about the up the upsets. Like, there's you know been five or six kind of notable upsets, like really big seed upsets in in the tournament. And I was like, all right, well, let me get some help from some of the guys I work with. And I took a look at the data from each of those upset games. I'm talking about Oral Roberts two wins. Ohio over Virginia, which I didn't really think was a big upset as it was made out to be. Oh, there was a couple other ones, um, Texas and, and Abilene Christian. So what, what I did was like just go back to my spreadsheet, look at those games individually and see if there was something that, uh, yeah, North Texas over Purdue was another one. Um, that, I, that I, I went and looked at those games and like, okay, let me look back and just browse through those and see if there's something that, that, that for factor wise that we could find. And, and really none of those upsets on paper look the same there, there, you know, UNT won both effective field goal percentage and turnover Purdue. They just beat them. They just straight up beat them, just outplayed them. I think Ohio was better than Virginia. They won three out of the four factors. So they, they were just better, but we did notice a couple things that, 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 this particularly Oral Roberts you mentioned, but a couple things were sticking out is the teams that advance, the upset winners, the, the Davids, not the Goliaths, right? They managed to take care of the ball at a very high level. I'm talking single digit turnover percentage with maybe like one, one exception. So, you know, just think about that. Like you're out athleted, they're bigger, they're stronger, they're, they're more physical than you in terms of you're, they're a high major D1, you're mid-major or, or low major. You got no, you cannot feed the turnover machine. Like you just can't. Like that team's going to take it and dunk it and get on runs and just blow you out. So, what Oral Roberts has done in both of those games, I found it funny, is Oral Roberts is in the Sweet 16 and is yet to win effective field goal percentage, the number one most predictive factor to winning. So, they've won both of their games over Ohio State and Florida without winning effective field goal percentage. They've won, they've kept their turnovers very low. Another thing they've done is they've kept their opponent off the free throw line. Let me temper that language. Ohio State had a very bad night from the free throw line as well. So not not only did they have they kept their opponents off the free throw line, Ohio State, I think was like 50%. So, you know, maybe they got luck too, you know, but but uh but but they were there. They were there close to earn earn that luck because they didn't feed the turnover machine against the more physical, faster, more athletic team. So 
I guess if a coach wanted to take a lesson from that, they could be like, okay, when, when we're outmatched, what is something we absolutely cannot do to have a chance to win? And that would be turn the ball over. Yeah, I did want to talk about that. So I'm glad you brought that up. So the turnovers, shooting the ball well would, would help uh, or limiting the other team from shooting sure. the ball well. And that could be from the free throw line. Um, but maybe other practical application as far as, you know, because I'm even looking at the, this slide where you gave yeah. the overall record. Like you can't just look at one of these. And I think most coaches understand that. Yeah. Um, but but the combination of I, we need to at least shoot decently, but definitely not turn the ball over. I yeah, would say ahead. the same thing would, you know, that looks a lot like the women's data on the table. You showed that that there's one factor that's that's out in front and three that are a little more tightly packed. This is the men's from the men's tournament. What you're seeing on the screen now that, you know, you win effective field goal percentage plus one more. You're putting yourself in the chance in in in, in the near certainty realm of winning. Then. If you if you do happen to lose effective field goal percentage, which don't lose it by much. I mean, you're not don't you need to win another factor, not just barely, but like big time win it. Like if you just if you lose effective field goal percentage and just like get one more offensive rebound in your opponent, that's you're losing. You're out of there. Yeah. You've got to win it, win it, like win it, double, triple, you know, like so honestly, it's almost like the exception that proves the rule. Like that you have to do so tremendously well in another factor to win when you when you do lose effective field goal percentage is like proves how important that is right so like yeah. um you just you just uh that that's really the thing I, I think sometimes i tweet when i tweet out these reports like you're looking at i do so without any opining i just report the data let it let it get out there on twitter I don't have another line on this tweet that says, so go out and make all your shots or anything like, yay, effective field goal percentage. I'm not rooting for it. I don't care, right? I'm just reporting the data. And then coaches sometimes like will quote tweet or tweet that or something and say, look, make your shots and take care of the ball and you'll win. And I'm like, that's not quite what winning effective field goal percentage means. It's a two-way street. So the, the practical application that I would take would be to win effective field goal percentage we want to have a good offense and a good, we want to pull that apart from both directions, right? Mm -hmm. We want to make all our shots like the coach wants to quote tweet, make offense wins. Well, I want margin. I want great defense and great offense. And I want high, I want to turn my opponent over while not turning the ball over. So there's margin between the two. So there's a defensive implication in winning effective field goal percentage also. Uh, let's talk about like kind of general observations. Randy, maybe your first main observation from the first weekend. Um, there were some high-scoring games, several games in the 80s, 90s. I'm old enough to remember when that was the norm. I remember back uh, one year when Indiana, with, under Bob Knight, I, I even took a screenshot one time and said like, hey, this is, this is with a 45-second shot clock in the first year of the three-point line or something like that in Indiana, like, their, their wins in the tournaments were 90, 85, 95, 90, not, you know, like, so I'm, I am, my general observation is with some exceptions, there was some rock fights and some, some stinkers in there, but, but with, but generally speaking, I've seen Oregon, USC, Gonzaga, of course, put you know, like these, some good offense out there, some really efficient Alabama, 1.45 points per possession in one of their games. Like, really, really pleased with with 
generally again with some notable stinkers, but but some 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 high scoring efficient, I shouldn't say high scoring, I should say efficient offenses. What do you mainly attribute that to? Because it play just simply playing with pace? Is it taking better shots? Is it shooting more threes? Is it a combination? Is it maybe our our teams, uh, coaches like this one, we're shooting more threes. We're not as good as a, a good at them. And so the scores are lower. Like what, what do you attribute a lot of that to? I attribute it to the vast amount of coaches following radius athletics and Tony Miller on yes. Twitter. That's what I attribute. Shameless to. plug. I like that. No, no, like but that. no, seriously, all joking aside, but I, I think that's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of factors that I would like that I'm hope that I hope are the case. And that's this a trickle down from the NBA of of spacing, of efficiency, just num- just being more keenly aware. Maybe more teams playing what I call advantage style basketball, where they're just trying to get into an action. You know, get that first secondary defender to help, and then and then and then you know they're spaced around the three three, and they're playing just a style that maybe is just a little bit more efficient. I'm hesitant to use the word modern, but then then it maybe it used to be. We're, we're learning. We're getting smarter and more people are getting smarter and the people that aren't are getting bounced from the tournament yeah. with a few exceptions. My observation, uh, how many bad press breaks there are. I, I, I harp on this. <laughs> and follow me on Twitter. You probably see me complain about this at least once every weekend during okay. the tournament because you have so many. I think it's exposed just because you have so many more close games. And so obviously at the end of a close game, the other mm-hmm. team's going to be pressing or they're trying to come back. And so they're pressing. Yeah. And how many times I see players load to the ball and then run almost to the baseline and where they're going to this exact spot that in a middle school, I, I think you're taught in middle school still to stay away from the baseline and the sideline. Yeah. Um, and so the next question, a lot of times coaches will ask me, OK, well, then what's the what do we do with that? drawn out for you here the two corners obviously where we want to stay away from and everybody would tell you to stay away from those spots yet when the game gets close that's exactly where a lot of your guards run to uh, my practical suggestions would be first of all back your in your players that are inbounds the two four and the three back them up closer to half court to start yeah. out with most yeah. players will start either up on the free throw line or even closer and then we go and help the inbounder by running to those red spots and you immediately get trapped there. Most of the time we're pressing or it's like a jump press where you have like X one is coming. The inbounder defender is coming and trapping somewhere. Mm -hmm. And again, we get ourselves into trouble when we bring players and their defenders closer to the ball. This is a press break from Virginia. Um, You may or may not have a four that can handle the ball, but you bring the middle player to the ball and once two and three clear out, now you basically have the one or the four. You can throw it back to the one that's frame number two there, mm-hmm. or he can just clear the rest of the floor out and dribble the ball off the floor. Yeah. And so I, I think maybe the overarching principles here, stay away from the sidelines and your trapping areas, whether that's closest to the ball or even as you bring the ball up on this side or on the next side of half court. And then I think it goes back to our, series that we've been talking about with playing with space, like give the ball room to breathe. Don't allow a second defender to come because if you space the floor and a second defender does come, it's a pretty easy pass to somebody who's wide open. And now you have an advantage going forward into the, into the front court there. So. Yeah. What you're talking about, I, I, I kind of had a a little term for it is inviting too many people to the party. Right. So like you, you, you walk all your players, up into the, you know, like a one, four press break or something like that. 
you know, we need all these guys so we can get the ball in bounds. Well, you've you've invited a lot of people to the party also who want to take the ball from you. So yeah. I tended to use a single entry on any press, like just one player up, the other three across the half court line. And if we need to bring another up to relieve, we get to that third, fourth second of a five second count, assuming we can run the baseline, let's say, then we would slide a second player up and then slide over and where we still have one player. I just don't inv- like inviting all those. Yeah people to the party who want to take the ball from you. You, you you're playing on their half of the court now. Yeah. This is the video of it. You can see the two and the three that I had diagrammed. They run to the ball and it's almost like a diversion to either get that inbounder to come trap those guys. And then that takes away your inbounder. And then you have yeah. your middle guy come, everybody clears. And now you're able to bring the ball up the floor. One V one. Yeah. Anyways, that's and I like that they catch the ball in the middle of the court rather than one of the outer thirds where the right. boundary also kind of creates a restriction of space and you can get, let yourself get sideline trapped or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of more of just our own personal opinion, fun, but your favorite player to watch this tournament. So far, so far it's, been- okay. So far it's been Buddy Beheim of Syracuse. I thought he's been electric, like really just fun to watch. I would I would describe him as a four level score. You hear a three level score a lot. Like he's he's uh I would say he's a four level score, meaning he's hit deep threes, threes mid-range and finished at the rim he single-handedly carried them through the first round and then the second round as a as a group they played a little bit better and uh, we'll see if his hot play continues what I've liked they've done with him is they get they get against a switching team and he's he's a bigger guard they get a smaller guard on him and he just goes to work he just shoots over him like sometimes it's sometimes it is from mid-range from the elbow area He's been my favorite player to watch in terms of his shooting efficiency and the way he gets a shot off, the way he recognizes who's guarding him and recognizes when he has a size advantage and and the way he uses it. I heard an interview with him and his dad, and then I've seen some things online, but, you know, coaches to to the point of talking to your players about, because they'll watch the tournament. They'll be like, I want to do that. So they'll go out and practice. Like Randy just said there, they'll practice scoring on those four different levels. And they think that that's as simple as it is but he's an incredible worker and I, that's the behind the scenes that you don't see and they don't necessarily talk about during a, yeah. a, a televised game. So but one of the coaches in my mentoring program coaches in the Syracuse high school coach in the Syracuse area. And he, he coached against buddy Beheim when he was in high school. And he was like, the improvement this guy has made is phenomenal. Like he's, yeah. he was like really just kind of like, Oh, that's Beheim kids. He's all right. You know, to, to now where he's really carrying their team in a sense. So favorite X's and O's things that maybe you've liked or a play or something that has stuck out to you. I've got a rule when it comes to like plays or sets. And my rule is it's got, it's a two frame rule, like two fast model, shout out to fast model. It's a two frame rule. Like if you have to diagram it and it takes four <laughs> or six frames, I'm out, I'm out. I'm so with you. so yeah. the, the, the one that I picked out of on Syracuse, I kind of picked it out because it kind of fit with like a a lot of the gap attacks that a lot of the coaches I work with are running. So uh, they ran this first, their first possession, they have possession of the ball coming out of halftime. I think in their first round game, this was their, you know, it's their ball by possession arrow or whatever. And and they ran this the first play of the second half in, in one of their games. Simple looks like horns, you know, which from horns, it could be anything, right? Like, People run all kinds of stuff out of horns, but it was really nothing more than a, a, a clear out, if you will. I took a few liberties with it. You, if you watch the video of it, I don't know if you have that, but I, I, I can. It is on my Twitter feed. 
I don't know that they really intended to make that look like a fake handoff there to the mm -hmm. one cutting over the top, but it's sort of, it sure could. And then he keeps the ball and drives in the double gap. And I added in those uh, penetration reactions that, which would be, you know, kind of following with once we penetrate, we, we move, move right when the, when the ball is penetrating. Right. So this is a theme that we, both of us had, had caught on and a lot of people are seeing this this year, but like the ghost screens. Mm -hmm. So when five comes up, he's not actually going to set a screen. Uh, what you're actually doing is kind of trying to get three in space there. And so once two clears out, you have the ISO that that's, this is Alabama. So going okay. on that theme of playing with space. So you basically just clear out an entire side and uh, allow your, your three to go and make a play at the basket. So combination of the pace action and then also the ghost screens. So have you seen anything with ghost screens that like, once the ghost screen happens, something that's coming next that's interesting. Yeah, really. Sometimes it's just like you've got drawn. Most of the time, it's just a way to to pull two to the ball and then attack that space when the guy kind of pops off the ghost screen. Yeah. Then ghost screens like they're winning the tournament. Like that's that seems to be like I tweet. I made a funny tweet the other day. Like like you know that that game Jay Billis plays during the draft coverage. Every time someone says wingspan, take a drink. Right, like. <laughs> I, I was like, you're watching tournament all day and you see a ghost screen, take a drink. I hope you don't have to function the next day. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So the ghost screen, you know, it's, it's, it's popular because so many teams are switching and you're causing some confusion at that point of that screen. Do we switch? Do I stay? Or what, what are they doing here? Is this, are they really trying to pick the guy in, in terms of traditional pick and roll or like, so it creates a little bit of point of confusion there at that, at the point of attack that, that maybe gives the ball handler a chance to, to attack the space vacated by that ghost screener. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's why it's so popular is because switching has become very popular on the defensive side. All right. We're going to kind of transition again. Once again, it's time for our segment beyond the scoreboard presented by sideline interactive. Uh, you may be wanting to increase your revenue for your program or improve the fan experience, or maybe it's just time to replace really old scoreboards. Sideline Interactive is the leading manufacturer of scoring tables and video display boards for high schools and colleges around the country. To find out more, visit sidelineinteractive.com. We're going to do something that both of us have already admitted that we're terrible at, and that yes. is predicting the next round of the tournament. So uh, I'm going to pull this up here. It may be a little bit difficult for you to read, Randy, so I'm going to try to give them to you here. Predict our our elite eight, and then also our final four here. So first match, Gonzaga, Creighton, maybe a quick word on one of those, and then who you have with this if you want to. Zags, too much. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. Um, USC and Oregon. I think this will be a, a, a terrific game. Yeah. And, and I, I'm sure they – I mean, they've obviously already played, being in the same conference. You're going to make me pick. I would say let's go with USC. They got more pros. All right. Uh, so a conflicting style almost maybe here. We, we had talked about this earlier, but USC playing the zone. Showing some zone. Getting up and down the floor. They're the ones that scored in the high 90s the last time they played. Um, so that may be an interesting thing to watch. Yeah, that'll be a fun one. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for that one. Uh, this may be arguably the best potential game of the weekend. Michigan at Florida, uh, Michigan and Florida State. Give right, me Florida, Florida State. State. I'm a big Florida State guy. Leonard Hamilton been on the podcast. Super nice guy. Yeah, I'll probably go with Florida you pick State. Pick against him? No, okay. I'm going to go with Florida State there too. UCLA and Alabama. I'll, I'll take Bama. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go back to the South there. So Baylor and Villanova. I got Baylor. I had Villanova losing in like the first or second round, and I'm not sure why I bet against Jay Wright. I know several of his players are hurt, but I think at this point it catches up with them. So I'm going to go with Baylor as well there. Um, Arkansas and Oral Roberts. 
Pogs. Yep. Same with me. This is not fun. We're both doing the exact same thing. Well, we'll, uh, we'll Lo- disagree eventually. Loyola, Chicago, and Oregon State. That that's a sneakier good game yeah. than people think. That yeah. that's a well coached Oregon State team. They make oh, well. it tough to score. They 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 grind you. This one first one to fifty five wins. I think like, but I'll I'll take Loyola. Okay, I'll go with Oregon State here for the exact reasons that you just mentioned there. I mean, I. I Definitely a toss-up, but like Loyola uh, Chicago on defense. To me, we didn't talk about this, but their defense, there that's the most well-coached unit. If you if you look at it like football, like so-and-so's defense, so-and-so's offense, so-and-so's special teams, like the Loyola defense is so well coached. Like they get so much carryover. Their teaching is just so evident in the way they play defense. But I, I'm I'm gonna give a slight nod to them. You're going with the Beavers. Okay. Yep, yep. All right. And then Syracuse and Houston. Well, you can see by all the things that I picked that I'm kind of a closet Syracuse fan. I talked about the zone and the and the favorite X's and O's and favorite players, but I, I'm still going to pick against them. I'll give me the Cougars. All right, all right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I have to go with with Houston as well, even though I could for sure see Syracuse winning that game. All right, let's go back to the top here and let's get our final four. So you're down to Gonzaga and you had USC. Or did I did. You? Yes, Gonzaga I, and USC. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go much. with this. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and then Florida State and Alabama. I got Florida State. Man, I mean, defensive team. We think of Alabama. We didn't talk about this. We think of Alabama. And I think it's starting to get out there a little bit more. Yeah. Like yeah. Alabama, not – we talk about the offense, but I think the defense is really the thanks. Well, they're, they're good in both. Yeah. They're, I think – and if you look at Ken Palm, Alabama is like 28 or something there in, in offense, which but their offense is getting a lot defense. of the, yes. uh, Their offense gets a lot of talk because, of you know, it's well known that he's kind of embraced the analytics and that makes some good journalism and good story to, to tell about. But their offense is like 28, which is good. There's 300 and something. So that's top 10% in offense. In the, but their defense is like number two or number three in defensive efficiency. So – they're really, really a good defensive team. So, uh, but I still, I, I like Florida State there. Yeah, I'd have to go with Florida State as well. All right, Baylor and Arkansas. Baylor. Yeah, I would go with Baylor as well there. And then you have Loyola and Houston. I do have Loyola and Houston. You have Oregon State and Houston. Give me Houston. Yeah, I would go with Houston as well there. All right. So our final four picks, Gonzaga. I think we're all the same. Gonzaga, Florida State. Baylor and Houston. That's what I have. Pretty good. And we'll, we can we can pick the final four next week. Yep. So we'll be back next week, next Friday, uh, same time, same place. We'll check back in about these. Uh, we do appreciate all those who joined us this week. And if you missed any part of the show, you can go back and watch the full video on the Radius Athletics YouTube page. If you want to listen to it, we'll put it up next Friday on a quick timeout podcast. If you search there, you'll see the full audio of the show. For Randy Sherman, I'm Tony Miller. Appreciate all those of you who tuned in and who are listening on the replay. We'll talk to you again next Friday.